Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I am Sophia Apostle, and I'm very excited to be talking to Rabbi Dr. Minna Bromberg today. Hi, Minna. Hello, hello. Welcome. So, Minna, I've been, I mentioned this before we start recording, I've been following you for quite some time, your Instagram account, Fat Torah, because I hadn't ever really thought before about the anti-fatness that exists within organized religions. And then, of course, I started following you and I thought, oh, yeah, this is like a whole other area of our lives where anti-fatness um, uh, comes in. And I'm just so excited to like dive into that with you today. So thank you for being here. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to talking. I also love that we've coordinated colors just, you know, because it, it just happened that way. I love it. We're both wearing purple. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Minna? So let's see. I live in Jerusalem with my spouse and our two children. And I've been involved in fat activism since I was a teenager. Um, I was very lucky, I would say. I, I was not lucky that I started dieting as a seven-year-old. That was not so lucky. Um, but by the time I was 16, I was done. I was done, done, done. And um, was really, when I say lucky, I mean because there was no internet in those days. And so we, you know, found out about each other from newsletters and magazines. And so... Um, Thank God, I will say completely unironically, actually, thank God for Radiance Magazine, which then um, connected me with NAFA and in particular with the Fat Feminist Caucus of NAFA and then with No Lose and um, really just I feel like I was politically raised by fat lesbian feminists. And um, so I've been involved in in some ways in fat activism for the last 30 something years or so. And, um, I feel like for a long time though, my fat activism was kind of quiet. Like it involved being myself fat in public and not apologizing, which is an important form of activism. That's pretty radical even of itself. <laughs> it was totally <laughs> radical. And, you know, I would have individual conversations with people. But it wasn't, I, I became a rabbi 10 years ago, and it wasn't really a big part of my rabbinate until Fat Torah started just about three years ago now. I'm happy to say more about that, how all that happened. Yeah, I'm excited to, to talk about what led to the creation of Fat Torah and the work that you're doing not so quietly now. But I'm so curious about the part, and this ties into this kind of you know, the second question, which is always the journey that you've had with the word fat, dieting at seven, stepped away from dieting at 16. Those are both really young ages. So what was going on at seven where were you put on a diet? Did you feel like you had I was to? not actually. I was like one of these kids who my parents were certainly happy that I was dieting and they were supportive in ways that you know, like how much of a seven-year-old's choices are their own. It certainly felt like my own choice. Um, and and I remember specifically a family friend who um, had these, you know, mimeographed, because 
that's when it was. It was in the days of mimeograph. Had these mimeograph, you know, this mimeographed diet that she was on. And looking back, it's so funny because she is a skinny person, like an all this family friend, and always has been. But apparently, she felt that she needed to be dieting. Um, and I think at the time, as a seven-year-old, um, I had moved to a new town. I'd moved across the country, actually. And I think, you know, most of my thinking involved um, that I that I wanted to have friends and I thought I would have more friends if I wasn't fat. And I mean, I think this is true for lots of folks who grow up fat that like, I wasn't actually a, for, like I'm, I'm now I would describe myself as super fat. I certainly wasn't in what I would think of as like a super fat kid, but I perceived myself and other people perceived me as fat. And really, you know, at first the, the impetus really was, you know, that I would, I would have more friends oh. if I, yeah. So it was definitely about, you know, fitting in. Absolutely. Yeah. And then did that spark, you know, weight cycling or like what happened between seven and 16? I, it did spark some weight cycling, but I think, and I'm really actually grateful, like to my body and my, and just my makeup for this, that. I don't think I was especially good at dieting. Yeah. So like I, <laughs> I did a lot of different diets. Yeah. Um, I went to Weight Watchers as a kid and I went to OA as a kid. Oh. And then for a little while. OA for Overeaters Anonymous for kids. Oh no, it wasn't specifically for kids. I was there with like all these adults. It was like me and this room full of adult women in the basement of a church. It was, yeah. Oh, wow. But, I, but like, I was a kid who liked hanging out with grownups. So that part actually didn't feel weird to me, I don't think. And Weight Watchers also, there were no other kids there. It wasn't like a kid-specific thing. And I think I really felt, and I remember maybe writing in my diary about this at one point, just really feeling like there were so many areas of my life where when I tried like when I made an effort, I had the results that I wanted and I didn't understand why dieting couldn't be that way. And it was really, really frustrating for me that I couldn't sort of accomplish the kind of weight loss that I wanted to accomplish. Again, looking back, I am so delighted that I wasn't able to, um, to do that to myself or to have that happen to me. Um, but at the time it was definitely frustrating. Yeah. That, what you just said around, um, my version of that is, it was for decades, I am able to accomplish almost everything else in my life that I put my mind to. Why can't I do this? And I remember torturing myself with that thought, like, and being very confused. How can I get a master's degree? How can I like, be an athlete. How can I do all these really hard things? How can I survive some real tragedies that I'd experienced? And yet this one area I keep failing. And of course I made it all about me. I well, that's, keep that's failing. That's what's so wild, right? That like, it never occurred to me to be like, let's be logical. There are other things where when I try, I can get some results. Maybe the odd thing out here is that this isn't, that this system doesn't work. It definitely didn't occur to me as a kid. Yeah. I think, so I also, you know, in terms of like what else I was doing, I definitely did a lot of like, you know, sneaking food and, you know, stealing money from my mom's wallet to buy candy. That definitely happened. So I definitely, you know, did, ha did some of those sorts of things too. Yeah. Those kind of like driven behaviors, if there was restriction for me, it was very restriction based. I was like, Oh, absolutely. Like, and, and I think also that there was like, I feel like there was some aspect of like, you know, stealing money and sneaking and things that was just like such a healthy fuck you. Right. That was just like, this is not like, it's not right that I'm being, you know, treated this way by, by society. And it's not, right that I'm being encouraged to do this to myself, the parts of it that I was doing to myself. And so I kind of actually like love the part of myself that was like sneaking around, getting the ho-hos from the corner <laughs> store. Yes. 
Oh, I love that way of thinking about it. Okay, I'm going to take that on because, yeah, there that was a really rebellious part. And the energy I had, I actually, I really, like, I remember, you know, taking like 20 bucks from my mom's wallet and the thrill of that. And then I would have the bus driver. We took the bus home and I would, and I still remember her name, Gloria. Gloria, I would be like, Gloria, could you let us out here? Because I had my sister and brother with me and I would go into the grocery store and I would buy like some bags of chips and chocolate bars. And like, I just like, and then I would eat it in secret. Like it was a whole exploit. Like it was a whole caper. What I would do. I never really thought of it as like, I actually am really proud of that little girl. Thank you for saying that because you've actually just connected me to that kind of little younger 12 year old rebel part of myself who was like, um, this fucking sucks and I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> right. Exactly. And like, you know, thank God that there's like, there was a part of us that, you know, survived that understood like what pleasure was and what nourishment was and yeah oh these little people that we were oh I could just cry (laughs) thinking about our younger selves it's incredible to me that at 16 you had I don't know the wisdom the emotional maturity to to just disconnect from it It, say more about that that's amazing to me I'm gonna argue with the emotional maturity part but but I definitely had like intellectual maturity and I also had like my mom was on her own journey too she had been put on diets and like put on you know weight loss drugs which was speed at the time she you know was just amphetamines as a teenager and and didn't didn't end up being a particularly large adult, but certainly always thought of herself as needing to uh, police her weight. And so she was really kind of on a journey with me in the sense that like when I was dieting as a seven-year-old, she was very encouraging. And then in my, and then I don't remember which one of us, it was sort of like a, you know, like stages. So first we discovered Jane Hirschman and Carol Munter, who wrote a book called Overcoming Overeating, and then later wrote a book called When Women Stop Hating Their Bodies. And then we discovered Janine Roth, who like, I wouldn't, well, Carol Munter has had a different journey, but Janine Roth is not someone who I think of as a fat liberationist, but just the idea that you could not diet, that like you had the choice to not diet was such an important thing that I took from her. Like, even though like it worked on the premise and the promise that like, well, you're not going to diet, but you're going to do this other thing and still lose weight. So like the still lose weight part was still in there. But I think that's true also of like when the folks who were first working on intuitive eating, you know, when intuitive eating first came out, it was also with sort of like this hope that if you were truly eating intuitively, you would lose weight. And obviously they've had a whole evolution around that. In some ways it feels like, there was sort of a, oh, I don't have to diet. And like, that's the part that stuck with me. And then thankfully, before I got too upset about the not losing weight part and went back to dieting, thankfully that sort of tided me over until I found NAFA and and the fat acceptance movement. And, and so that's sort of how that happened. But it definitely, I, I mean, I was, I was also, I will say I, I was at college and uh, I was at college in the late 80s and I feel like, you know, I said that I feel like I was, you know, raised politically in some ways by fat lesbian feminists, but I also feel like just more broadly the way that at the time gay and lesbian liberation was happening and particularly in the late 80s when, you know, the AIDS epidemic was just, you know, at such a pitch and there was so much fear and so much amazing and heart-wrenching activism and care work going on. And and at my college, there were a couple of really, I think just, I shouldn't say that, there was sort of this um, sense of folks coming out of the closet around around being, what we, you know, queer or, or gay or bi, whatever terms they were using at the time. And I think I really also took a huge amount of, inspiration in my fat liberation journey from the gay liberation that I saw happening around me. 
just what it means to actually allow ourselves to be ourselves when we live in bodies that are despised and and degraded um, was was hugely important also to my journey. And then, so that's kind of when you're in your college years, and then, and then what what happened to bring you to cr- the creation of the nonprofit Fat Torah? So I had, so then I had, I would say, for most of my twenties, I was in a very important sort of developmental stage of just having a huge amount of raging fuck you energy to the world. And uh, that was so important, so important. And then I got kind of like burnt out lefty protest politics in the late 90s, early 2000s, and also started meditating. And I think that and started to really want and and seek out my own spiritual life and religious life in ways that I hadn't before. And there was something for me, not for anyone else. Not I'm not saying this is what other people are doing, but for me there was something about that particular form of protest politics that I had been involved in that felt like it was sort of like nourishing my own anger without act- in ways that weren't healthy for me, like in ways that were that were corrosive to me and weren't necessarily sort of having the impact on the world that I hoped they would have. And so that's when I think my activism, as I said, went pretty quiet and was really much more about showing up in my own body unapologetically. And that, I mean, again, that feels really important. And then I, but I still, like, I, I wrote song, I wrote Fat Liberation songs, and I, you know, certainly sang those as a, um, as a singer-songwriter for many years. And then when I finished rabbinical school, when I was ordained in 2010, I pretty shortly thereafter had sort of the concept of, and the, and the phrase Fat Torah pop up in my head. And I, what still feels both so natural and also so radical to me is just this idea of taking these two words, fat that is, you know, so rich with possibility and abundance as a word, but that's so often used as a, as a slur and as a way of othering people. And then Torah, which is also this immensely rich word that's about the best that we have to offer the world as individuals and the best that our tradition has to offer the world in terms of wisdom. Um, and just what it meant to sort of bring those two words together and suggest that, that fatness and fat liberation had something to say about Jewish learning and Jewish life and that Jewish learning and Jewish life had something to say about fat liberation. And because that's certainly how I was sort of living it internally. And so I started doing like tiny little bits of writing. So I was serving a congregation at the time in Pennsylvania. And when the local Jewish newspaper would ask a bunch of rabbis in the area, you know, can you write something for Passover, um, which is our big spring holiday? Um, I wrote about how I gave up dieting as a teenager and how for me that was connected with the story of Passover, which is the story of the exodus from slavery to freedom. And it's told in the book of Exodus in the Bible. Um, and so, and part of that um, is that the word that's used for, so this is the story of the, Hebrews of the Bible having been slaves in, in Egypt to Pharaoh and, and then being freed. And the word that's used for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which can be creatively translated because a lot of Jewish work with Torah is about creative translation. Um, so Mitzrayim, the word for Egypt can be creatively translated as meaning the narrow place. Interesting. And so, so this sense that for me, giving up dieting was, was about exodus from the place of narrowness and 
freedom from a place of narrowness. And so, um, so I, again, was just doing like tiny little, you know, blog posts here and there. And then things kind of came to a, came to a head when I was a little over three years ago now at a Hanukkah party. So Hanukkah is our winter festival of, of lights and other themes. I was at a Hanukkah party for my daughter's preschool. Uh, so it was like me and her and 50 other three to three and four year olds in a synagogue. She goes to preschool. She was going to preschool at a synagogue and we were, you know, it was a preschool party. So the first activity was singing and dancing. And I'm someone who in my own relationship with my body, I'm happy to say generally, I feel very happy to dance in public. And so it was a little odd to me that on that particular day, I was feeling really not so comfortable dancing in public because I was 39 weeks pregnant. And so I realized that I had like this whole running set of voices going on inside me. And one of them was saying, I hope everyone knows that I'm pregnant and that's why I'm not dancing. And then this other voice that was like, that's kind of an ableist thing to say to yourself. Like theoretically anybody should be allowed to like show up anywhere and do whatever they can and want to do. And then this other voice that was like, oh, come on. Why do you think people are judging you? Everyone's just doing their other, their own thing. And this other voice that was like, um, cause people are always judging. Right. So I've got like this whole internal dialogue going. And then my poor daughter was like, Ima, she called me Ima, that's Hebrew for mother, for mom. Ima, you have to jump. And I was like, oh, honey, I, I just, I can't, I cannot jump right now. And so then we took a break to eat sufganiyot. So sufganiyot are these basically jelly donuts. A lot of the traditional foods around Hanukkah are fried um, because of the story of Hanukkah, which involves a miracle of oil that was used to light the lamps in the temple in Jerusalem back in the day that were, there wasn't enough oil to last as long as there was only enough oil for one day, but it lasted for eight days. And that's why we light lights for Hanukkah. And that's what we're celebrating. And so because of that oil, a lot of the foods associated with Hanukkah are fried foods. We were eating these delicious jelly donuts. And then the young guy who was leading the singing and dancing said to this room full of 50 preschool children, all right, let's all get back to singing and dancing unless you've gotten too fat from those sufganiyot. So I was like, oh, right. The reason I was feeling judged is because people are always judging me and fat people in general and fatness. And so, like, I think one thing that people might not understand about fat activists is that it still hurts every time. It still fucking hurts. And so, so part of it was just the pain of, like, why am I not allowed to just be in a space without having my body denigrated publicly and casually and flippantly. So there was that piece. There was rage that he would say this to a room full of little, little kids. When we know that they're like already thinking about their own bodies and other people's bodies in terms of good and bad and starting to think about foods in terms of good and bad. And I started thinking then about just all the ways that anti-fat bias gets in the way of our full enjoyment of our communal and religious and spiritual lives. And, and particularly, you know, we were talking before we started recording about that so many traditional food ways are foods that are, that are sort of thought of in diet and wellness culture as bad for you. And so just the way that, and that of course, you know, connects with all kinds of white supremacy and Christian supremacy around how bodies ought to look and what eating ought to be. So that rage was also in me. But then I also had this real upwelling of like, wait a second, how come this guy doesn't know that this holiday is a celebration of fat? Like we are celebrating the miracle of fat. That's what this holiday is. And that's why we eat fried foods 
because fat for this holiday is a symbol of our people's endurance in the face of hardship. And so that really was what sort of uh, inspired me and continues to inspire me in this work. It's just that real combination of let's look at all the ways that anti-fatness interrupts or creates a barrier to our full participation and enjoyment of our religious and and communal and spiritual lives, but also let's also look at all the ways that our traditions are so rich and so fat in their ability to abundantly support our our fat liberation. Wow, I feel I almost I, it's so interesting talking to you, Minna, because I feel close to tears this whole time because I feel like you're oh I'm gonna cry. I feel like you're healing something in me even as you're talking things that I experienced in the, um, the Greek Orthodox church and, um, especially those, the social moments, you know, the coffee times and the, the Sunday school pieces. And yeah, I'm surprised. I'm feeling quite surprised that there's a lot of emotion coming up because you're, you're just, you're shifting it. You're shifting it. And I think also that like religious communities and not just religious communities, like we can also think about, you know, other kinds of communities where, there's this real desire for belonging and closeness and this real promise of belonging. And so it's particularly, I've done some writing and some work around the concept of moral injury or soul injury, which is like, which has a long history that I won't get into, but part of it is really just, you know, what does it mean when this place that really promises that you will be fully accepted here, then does not accept you. So, there's a community. Um, there's a community that I that now has changed its seating, thankfully. But when I first there, it's a community that's known for being extremely welcoming to people who are from all kinds of different Jewish and non-Jewish and interfaith backgrounds. It's just an incredibly welcoming community, and they're known for that. And they've done hard work around that, and they continue to do amazing. They do amazing interfaith work also here in Jerusalem. And their slogan is come as you are such a, like, it's so beautiful. And I would show up with my then toddler to services and there would not be a seat that I could sit in. And that like crashing together of that promise of welcome and the lack of welcome is really, you know, creates such a deep, deep injury. Yeah. I think that you're, you're naming what's happening inside of me really beautifully. And I, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, when I talk to people who work in DEI spaces or I work for a couple of different organizations that are doing a lot of work around examining how anti-oppressive are we as an organization in all the different ways and sizeism, anti-fatness is not there. And then I'm always the fat person being like, um, hi, <laughs> What about different size bodies? And it's, there's an inherent contradiction that shows up between what the desire is. Everyone is welcome. Come as you are. And like you said, it crashes into, but what about my body? And then suddenly, yeah, there's a, yeah, the exclusion of that. Oh my gosh. Well, and it feels like it feels different to me than like when, you know, I go to get the oil changed in my car and the waiting area at the Jiffy Loop doesn't have a seat for me. Like that is annoying and whatever, but like I'm not expecting that to be a space where my entire being will be welcomed and held, right? So like, I think that's, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, so, 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 so important. Oh my gosh. I've been dying to ask as you've been talking about objections, anger, uh, like pushback against what you're writing, talking about. Like even when you started out doing those little blog posts, like you said, like little blog posts about, you know, escape from the narrows. I mean, that's, I, I imagine a lot of people really got up in arms about those stories. I think there's, um, I think there's sort of, I think there's a lot of like crickets from the people who don't agree, but think it's impolite to say anything. Um, so I think there's a lot of that. I think the most, um, and then of course there are, you know, trolls and, um, 
And I think the the most interesting objections that I've heard, um, there's a concept in the Jewish tradition that I actually hadn't heard about before I started doing this work and people told me I was violating it. Um, and the concept is, uh, in Hebrew it's called Shmirat HaNefesh, which means, which basically means taking care of yourself. And, um, but what's fascinating is that the entire concept of Shmirat HaNefesh ha- seems to, at least in the trolling that I get about it, seems to have been like taken over by healthism and, and the way that anti-fatness plays into healthism. When you, and so it, it prompted me to look at the roots of where this tradition comes from. And it's originally used to talk about the risks that we take in life and whether those risks are acceptable to take or not. And so, um, for example, and like whether, and like under what circumstances you're allowed to take them. So one example, I think from the 19th or maybe 18th century is someone who's writing about, you know, are you allowed to hunt for wild animals in the woods? And what they end up saying, because they're thinking of hunting for wild animals in the woods in Eastern Europe as a Jew, um, as a, as a, as a dangerous activity and a really risky activity. And so the question is, are you allowed to like put yourself at risk in this way? And what this particular scholar ends up saying is, well, you are if it's your livelihood. Like if you have no other way to make a living, then you're allowed to take this risk. But if you, if it's not your livelihood, then no, you shouldn't take that risk. So like we can, this isn't about whether hunting is dangerous or not, but like we can think about, so I think for people who think of fatness as a lifestyle choice, that they're sort of using that if they know enough about the background to say, you know, why are you sort of taking this quote unquote unnecessary risk? So like, obviously I don't think that fatness is a necessary lifestyle choice. Although I think, you know, people can choose fatness if they like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that framework really works for thinking about fatness, but then I dug even deeper and it turns out that the biblical verse that that concept of Shmirat HaNefesh is based on is a verse warning people not to make idols, which is so wild because it's specifically said, it's specifically warning people not to imagine that God or the divine can be embodied in the shape of a, of a human being, which was like, Oh, wait, this is actually about not imagining that a particular human shape should be worshiped as if it were God. And to me, that's what dieting is. Like to me, dieting is a form of idolatry, right? It's holding up an ideal and really being worshipful toward it in ways that distract us from the highest ideals that we should actually be holding. And so, um, so that's the most, like, that's the, that's my favorite kind of criticism that I've gotten because it allows me to say, Oh, you're criticizing me from a Jewishly religious place. I'm going to answer you from a Jewishly religious place. And what I see is that the whole way that you're framing this is not how I would frame it. Um, but I think, I mean, I'm curious, I sort of feel like, you know, like our success in the work of Fat Torah, I assume we'll be able to be measured by how much more opposition we get in the future. So, <laughs> Right. I've heard activists say that, right? Like the, the more trolls they get, the more they know they're doing the right kind of work. <laughs> wow. That's so interesting about going back to the roots of what the concept actually is about. Huh. That's, that's incredible. Is that what, when you, you had written about how weight loss is not a Jewish value, is that kind of rooted in what you're saying right there? Exactly. Exactly. So, and I think, and that's also directly talking about, you know, there are definitely, it's not, I don't think it's the same as there's been a lot of good work done in the world of fat studies around um, Christianity and particularly evangelical Christianity and how that's used in, in ways that are, um, that can be used in ways that are deeply 
fat phobic and that there's sort of these evangelical Christian diet plans. Um, there's less of that, at least in the parts, certainly in the parts of the Jewish world that I'm in. Um, but um, there are definitely, and there are increasingly, um, you know, especially in a social media age, right? Where like someone might be, you know, some kind of leader in their Jewish community and they also happen to sell a multi-level marketing dieting thing. And like, it becomes this thing where if you want to connect with the community that they are leading, then you're going to want to be Facebook friends with them or whatever, or follow them on Instagram or however, whatever, whatever your pleasure is. And you, that you can't sort of do that without getting whatever stuff they're also posting about their weight loss journey or their program or ask me how I can help you. Um, and so, um, one of my favorite things about Fat Torah is that we have this, we have a Facebook group that has almost a thousand members at this point. And it's a place where people really come for um, education and support and empowerment and celebration when they have, you know, fat activist victories. And, um, and someone, you know, a rabbi wrote in because she got this friend request from someone who she didn't understand why she was getting a friend request from them. But it was like someone who she had a lot of mutual friends with and someone who looked like a leader in the Jewish community. And so she accepted the friend request. And the next thing she knows, she's being sort of sneakily solicited for this person's multi-level marketing dieting thing. And she was writing in because she was this has never happened to her before. And of course, all these other people wrote in were like, oh, yeah, I know how to spot those folks. And I just blocked them from the beginning and from the get-go. Um, and so there are definitely ways that that sort of, again, like, we're talking about community and belonging and the desire for closeness. And, you know, another way that multi-level marketing is talked about is relational sales, right? And so it's specifically on the basis of those relationships that people are trying to sell you on their program. Um, so it can definitely be a source of real, um, it can be a big problem, right? That it is, you know, really creating, um, the barrier for people to be able to just be themselves in community without having to deal with that in their face. And also as we, I mean, you were, we were talking before we started recording about, or maybe um, about, you know, how, you know, so much of religious community is about what I would call schmoozing, right. And sort of being together and eat at least before the pandemic, you know, different communities are doing different things now, but um, you know, and eating together. And like, I would say that I can't, you know, eat at my synagogue or any synagogue, not mine specifically. Not so, I don't get a lot of, I'm sure I could, but I don't get a lot of people commenting on what I'm eating, but I get a lot of people commenting on what they are eating in like horribly, you know, fat phobic ways, right? So how are you, I don't know, opening the door for people to think differently? Is that the right way to ask that? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, we have the social media presence and we have our Facebook group. I've also, for the last two years or so, been teaching workshops. One kind of, um, I don't like the idea of a silver lining, but one good consequence of a bad thing um, during the pandemic has been, you know, that I've been able to do a lot of teaching online in, in contexts that wouldn't have necessarily been looking for that um, beforehand. And so I've taught at at this point dozens of, synagogues and campus groups, um, mostly North America, but also um, in Europe and the former Soviet Union and also some here in Jerusalem, um, really teaching workshops where we really look both, usually we start with kind of, um, you know, weight stigma 101 and why is it bad to discriminate against fat people and what is that that we face and sort of, and I was really, um, so grateful to Hannah Blank, who, um, who, for those of you who don't know her, is a wonderful, um, fat liberatory scholar and writer and, um, and all around creative, font of creativity and wisdom in my, in my world and many others. And, um, early on, I had a conversation with her where I was talking about, you know, like, I want to be doing sort of this intricate stuff around like deep Jewish text study and looking at all these and also how that relates to fatness. And she really was like, you need to understand like how much of this work 
is doing fat liberation 101 over and over and over again. And so, and so I think that was important for me to hear that like, that wasn't a flaw that was like meeting people where they are. Um, and so in our workshops, um, I usually start with, you know, very basics and I tell the story of how Fat Torah was started. Um, and then we take some particular um, holiday that's coming up or a particular text that people or theme. So I do a lot of teaching about um, this concept in um, in the Jewish tradition and not only the Jewish tradition, but um, this concept that human beings are all created in the divine image. And so, um, which comes right from the very beginning of the Bible. And so talking about, you know, what it means to really allow ourselves to imagine that fat bodies are created in the divine image. Um, and we look at different texts on that from, um, from different periods and sort of how we can relate to that. That's amazing. How has this impacted you in your relationship to your religion? I think it feels like so many rabbis and clergy, both Jewish and otherwise that I know, you know, spend a lot of time. And I myself also did this as well, just spending a lot of our time feeling like, you know, how can my role as a clergy person align with who I am most deeply and what's most important to me. And that's what Fat Torah allows me to do. And it's a, it's a, such a huge blessing to feel like I can bring my entirety to my work. That just, um, I feel like not enough people get to do that. Um, I'm really lucky. And so it allows me to, um, you know, be excited also about the learning that I'm doing and, and provides like a, a direction for my own learning. Cause one thing about, um, one thing about rabbis and hopefully the rest of us too, um, is that, you know, learning in the Jewish tradition is really just a lifetime, um, a lifetime activity. And so, um, you know, it enriches my learning and directs the directions that I want to be going in my learning. Um, and my teaching as well. And that feels really incredible to be able to have that in my life. It also, like, it also connects me with other fat Jews in ways that I never would have been able to before. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask next what the impact is that you've seen of this work. Are, are, gatherings changing are people being more mindful and so the person who's like you know hope you didn't eat enough donuts to get fat or whatever that was like is that are you noticing shifts there well it's a long road culture change is always a long road but there are definitely people who you know have reported things in their in our facebook group about uh, in our online community about you know that this year they decided to talk to the committee at their synagogue that's in charge of the chairs that they use in the synagogue and has actually like gotten this, you know, gotten the community to provide fat accessible seating. And like we had this fab, we had this fabulous conversation in the online community about like, how should we label it? What should we tell people about it? And it was great to have that conversation, but it was also like, Oh my gosh, like look what you were able to do and the change that you were able to make. I think that um, change is definitely happening around people speaking up around those structural and accessibility issues. So, um, you know, folks who are saying, no, actually when you order t-shirts that everyone is expected to wear at this community event, if you're expecting everyone to wear them, you need to order them in a size that actually fits the people who you're inviting or requiring to come to the community event. And so I feel like there's definitely change that's happening um, in those ways that people are speaking up for themselves. Um, and I think that the cultural change is a lot harder to measure. I sort of feel like, ask me in 15 years. <laughs> well, even those two examples, chairs and t-shirts, those are huge limiters to a feeling of belonging. And it does require, I think it seems like such a quote unquote simple thing or a simple ask, a simple thing for, you know, a, an organization to do. But it actually takes a lot of work to find a, 
you know, a store that has accessible seating available up to, and know it and knows their the like the weight limits of the chairs, for example. And to find a place where you can get matching t-shirts made that may go up beyond a 3X. And so there is effort involved. So the fact that organizations are taking on that effort is actually a really big deal. Absolutely. No, I'm really proud of the folks who are doing that work in their own communities and then, you know, sharing it with each other. Um, And, you know, there are definitely bumps along the road. Like it's not the case that people aren't meeting with any resistance. Um, Someone was reporting to the group, uh, I guess a week or two ago about, um, you know, some travel that they were being required to do by their employer in a Jewish context. And, you know, getting pushback about the kinds of needs that they had about, you know, airline seats and things like that. So there's definitely some pushback, but I'm just so proud of people speaking up. We also had a clergy person who said that, you know, just like you were saying that she, that they were doing a DEI training at her work. And she said, yeah, what, you know, like we've done this whole, like I've been sitting here all day and no one's talked about weight stigma or yeah, size. Yeah. So Minna, what, what's your hope? Like where, what are you wanting? I just, um, we're as an organization, Fat Torah is, is growing and we're actually doing some strategic planning right now. And as part of that, I did a brainstorm for myself of what I want the organization and, and also the world to look like when I retire in a few decades. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I really want diet culture to be marginalized. Like if individuals want to diet, that's their business, but I want it to no longer take center stage in our communities the way it does now. I want there to be accessible seating and, and room arrangements and, and other, and bathrooms and, uh, clothing and other forms of accommodation in any Jewish space. I don't want there to be, I, whenever we discuss eating disorders in the Jewish community, I want it to contain a fat liberation lens as well. I want there to be, you know, a vibrant and connected and supported community of Jewish fat liberation activists who are working with own, in their own communities. And also, I feel like there's so much work to do. I, I think that one thing that um, is so important to me is that, you know, so much of the work of fat activism for my money comes back to the question of human dignity. And I feel like there, that doesn't have to be a religious voice, but religious traditions have a lot of good things to say about human dignity. And, um, and I feel like, so, so there's also that piece of really being a moral voice in, in the, in the work of fat liberation. Um, just around this, you know, this whole piece of, um, yeah, of what it means to see the divine in every human being. I'm so inspired by that. And I also love the idea of <laughs> marginalizing diet culture that has spent its career marginalizing other bodies. Like I love the like. Let's turn it around, turn it back on. Oh, um, Mina, you also have a book that you're working on called "Everybody Beloved: A Call for Fat Liberation in Jewish Life." That's exciting. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, well, I really feel like you know books are such important conversation starters and ways of sort of opening up topics that might otherwise be hard to talk about. And so my dream for the book is that it can really, you know, be in the hands of um, clergy people and also just community members in um, in Jewish communities all over the world as a way of really starting to open up these conversations among their own communities. Also, Jews love books. We are called the people of the book. And so having, you know, a, a text that you can grab onto that's going to you know, do really what I, what I talked about our workshops doing as well. It's going to, you know, do some introduction of, of just what is fat liberation and why is it important and how does anti-fatness show up in Jewish communities and why is that a problem? 
and you know certainly directing people to all the other wonderful resources in that in those areas and then really diving into what i call these four different areas of impact and action so looking at four different places in in our communal lives where where weight stigma is particularly harmful and where there's wonderful work to do and also where there's sort of spiritual and moral support coming from it that can be brought out from the tradition to to do that work so the, so we talk about sacred space right how do we create physically accessible spaces and this value of our gathering places being places where where we invite the divine to join us and that we really can't do that if people are excluded from that space sacred speech which is about the Jewish tradition's view of the power of speech to create and destroy worlds and to create and destroy life and all the ways that speech is used in harmful ways in community and the ways that it can be used for healing sacred time looks at all of the different holidays and the ways that so many of our holidays are genuinely about feasting um and some of them are about fasting and that both of those have to do with food and eating and how can we you know recognize the harm that's done when people are letting diet culture and anti-fatness invade those spaces and also how we can sort of re-embrace them in the fat liberatory way and sacred text which is about just a, an approach a fat liberatory approach to to our traditions um and to our traditional texts and so that's the book and i'm and it's called everybody beloved because of this idea that that everybody beloved is a um a term in the mystical tradition for the divine for god and and so it really is about what it means also both on sort of a just loving everybody kind of a level and also on a level of really what does it mean to to see the divine in every human body that sounds amazing i love those four pillars i'm very excited to read it that just it feels just even hearing you talk about it and everything you've talked about today, I feel so nourished by by you, Mina. I feel like work of the book, maybe I should just keep talking to you about the book. We can just record and then it'll be the book. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> we could totally do that. <laughs> um, so I want to bring us to joy. Is there a, a rabbinical, is that the word, concept of joy? Like, does this play a part in your wisdom tradition, your religious tradition? Yeah, there's an amazing teacher from the from the early 19th century named Rabbi Nachman who taught many many things, but one of them was that it is a great mitzvah, it's a great sort of spiritual obligation to be joyful. Oh, an obligation to be joyful. That's very interesting. We also have actually and and we also have from in the book of Psalms itself, in the biblical book of Psalms, it says that we should serve God with joy, that joy should be part of our service um, and and that joy should be part of sort of how we serve the world and how we serve the divine. So there's that piece. And there's also a real strong thread in Judaism of the concept of pleasure and what it means for pleasure to be part of our lives. There's a wonderful, wonderful teaching in the Talmud, which is a Jewish text from the 6th and 7th centuries, let's say, that says that that when we're called to account for our lives and how we've lived them, that we'll be held responsible for every permissible pleasure that we didn't partake of. <gasps> oh my gosh. Okay, joy is an obligation and... You're in trouble if you didn't take advantage of all the pleasure that was available to you. Okay, I can get behind all of that. <laughs> That's so different. I know. And what's the example that they use of a permissible pleasure? Eating. Of course. Wow. It's so interesting. I, I was watching a video on one of the socials from someone who... I, who I kind of follow and I think is interesting. And she was talking about from a Christian tradition, she was talking about joy and she was saying, joy is not, it, 
it's totally opposite of what you're saying. She was like, and I really was like, I don't like this, where she was saying, joy is not something that we can choose. It's not something that we can create. It's gifted to us just in random moments. And I was like, I'm, I don't like that. Like I, I really objected to it. And, and I was, and then I sat with it because I thought, oh, is this just because I like to be in control of things? Is this my controlling nature come out? I don't know. But what you're saying actually feels more aligned with what I think, what I feel to be true through my body, which is that this is kind of the purpose of our lives is to turn towards, to choose as much as we're able, given privilege, given circumstances of our life. But I don't know, maybe this is controversial to say, but I also think that joy is maybe always available to us and not in a spiritual bypassing kind of way, but that kind of deep inner way. Yeah. I also think that like the, you know, the, the contrast of like, is joy something that we can work for or something that's gifted to us? Like it's similar if we think about create the human creativity, right? There's sort of the model of human creativity that says you sit down to write whether you want to or not, and then something will come or not, but you got to sit down to do it. And then the model of creativity that's like it just come. I'm walking along and it hits me on the head. And like both of those are true, but if you're actually wanting to have a life that's full of creativity or full of joy, then there is some human part of making space for it at least. That's a good, that's a good way to think about this. Yeah. So what does it mean to make space for joy is a really great question. And I I think also, and you'll tell me if this is spiritual bypassing or not, but I feel like in my own life, you know, when I'm really having a hard time accessing joy, that it's often that I'm sort of like trying to get it from a place that it, can't flow from right then. And so then the question becomes like, what other avenue or channel or window can I open? Even though my own tendency, I will admit, is to just like keep banging away at the one, keep banging away at the closed door. I mean, certainly like, like the, you know, the, the strongest kind of sense memory almost of that is, you know, when I was single and wanting to be partnered and like, you know, having these crushes that were just not going to work. But like, I could not imagine that anyone else would be the person for me other than this person who was completely and totally unavailable. Right. So that like, that there is, and that, you know, how do we sort of pull ourselves? I don't know how, I think some, sometimes that when I'm in that kind of obsessive kind of loop, that just kind of has to wear off, but it can maybe wear off a little quicker if I'm like, open to the possibility of some space opening up somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I often talk to clients about having like literally like analog, a post-it note on their desk with different access points so that when we are like beating the door of the one access point, it's like, oh, okay. And in that moment, we're not super resourced to think of other ways. So having already done that work, and then, oh, okay, there's my post-it list that my coach made me do. <laughs> they can like try something else to just shift, you know? I think that's where we then get to open up space for an alternative way to access joy or pleasure or whatever it is we're trying to do. Yeah, there's a great um, story that I heard a wonderful teacher who's no longer with us, Salman Shachter Shalomi was his name. Um, and he was a really important rabbi for a lot of people. And he tells a story about um, being, I think, probably a teenager um, in a context where he was in a religious community that, that prayed three times a day and had this very sort of um, fixed ritual that they went through. But they were also meant to be sort of imbuing that with meaning and joy for themselves. And he tells a story about having an older teenager who was like kind of in charge of his spiritual growth, who saw him one day praying in this mode that was like, he's praying so hard and he's like, kind of, you know, like, oh, he looks like his face is all squinched up and he looks like he's just having the hardest time with it. And he, he reports feeling this elbow in his ribs. And it was this, you know, older teenager who was in charge of his spiritual growth who says to him, did you try it with a smile and it didn't work? Oh, <laughs> 
I love that. No, I'm only efforting. I only do effort. <laughs> Ease? What is that? Because <laughs> if you did and it didn't work, then fine. But yeah, like, yeah. Know. But there are some, a few ways, a few ways in. Oh, I love that. So then how, so how do you make space for joy, Minna? Oh my gosh, that is a fantastic question, especially because I'm, you know, coming off this period of illness where I'm like, oh my gosh, where is joy? I mean, I think a lot of it for me right now, I'm thinking a lot about how my work life can really embody fat liberatory values, which I think, you know, I definitely learn a lot about that from anti-racist work, right? So like, you know, what's the role of urgency in my work? And what's the role of, you know, pressuring myself to like getting myself to do shit by pressuring myself when like, this is an organization that I started. Theoretically, I get to decide what the work culture is. Oh my God. That is my struggle with this podcast. It's so self, it's self-imposed urgency because capitalism like wh- why I it just yeah and so a lot of that ha- so I feel like I'm really enjoying like imagining you know what it means to grow an organization that's actually coming from this place of of fat liberatory and as I said also anti-racist and um and and I'm not you know I'm not an expert in any of that yet I don't think in terms of how it plays out in an organizational or a work culture but I feel like Part of that is sort of building in places for joy. Um, I live with a six-year-old and a three-year-old. Oh, little ones. Yes. So on the one hand, they are great teachers of joy. On the other hand, um, the care work that is involved in keeping them safe and fed and all those things is quite exhausting for me. And so, um, so I would, you know, when you said, you know, where do you find joy? I was like, napping. I do napping. I nap when I can. Are you familiar with the nap ministry, Trisha? I ju- Trisha I'm in Hardy's. the middle of her book. And oh, it's Hershey. So good. Hershey. Yeah. 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 So just really, yeah, embracing napping, I would say, is one of my most joyful and restorative and healing practices these days. Yeah. Are you able, Are I am always curious about people's nap procedure do you have like a routine or like a thing that you do that allows you to just drop into sleep i have at various times right now i i have a a sleep yoga youtube that i listen to and that usually sleep yoga oh yeah like is that like a yin yoga practice i don't know what that i think it's called yoga nidra but i don't know a lot about i don't know a lot about the tradition I just know that I found a YouTube that helps me nap. So good. So good. I love that. Okay, I'm going to check that out. <laughs> and I also have my favorite piece of furniture. I'm sort of looking backwards over my shoulder at it. My favorite piece of furniture is a recliner that I bought when when I was about to have my second child. We, When my first child was born, we lived in a rented apartment that was furnished and had a recliner. And so the one thing that I knew I needed in order to parent a newborn was a recliner and he's definitely not a rocking recliner. So he's definitely not a newborn anymore, but my recliner is sort of my, um, my, my place. There's a, um, this is a little off, off track, but Franz Kafka once wrote a letter to his apparently horrible father. And in it, it included the line from your armchair, you ruled the world. And so I like to think of my recliner as sort of like an an opposite of that, that which is that you know from my recliner I I give and receive nourishment to the world and from the world. That's so beautiful. Oh, wow. Mina, I I just want to say thank you. I feel so peaceful talking to you I see why you're an amazing rabbi like I feel like you see people I feel like this work that you're doing is helping your whole community 
helping a whole religion see people as the divine beings that they are and letting go like in your words of idolatry and all of that and just that we all really truly get to come as we are to these spaces and know that that sense of belonging will be waiting for us i mean what a gift what a gift you are thank you thank you for being here so good to talk to you i'm really this is my i've done quite a few podcasts in the you know podcast episodes in the jewish space and this is my first chance to do a podcast in the fat liberation space and it's so sweet for me to like not to like be educating about the jewish side of pieces of this but not having to come with like my own 101 about fat liberation so thank you also for creating a space where i get to kind of let my hair down in that way i <laughs> love that thank you minna Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Rabbi Dr. Mina Bromberg spoke about how our sacred spaces can align with fat liberation and so inspired by the work that she's doing and the work that her not-for-profit is doing called Fat Torah. This poem by Hajin is called A Center. And it really, when I read it, it just really connected me to the tenacity and patience <laughs> that activism requires. So here it is. You must hold your quiet center where you do what only you can do. If others call you a maniac or a fool, just let them wag their tongues. If some praise your perseverance, don't feel too happy about it. Only solitude is a lasting friend. You must hold your distant center. Don't move even if earth and heaven quake. If others think you are insignificant, that's because you haven't held on long enough. As long as you stay put year after year, eventually you will find a world beginning to revolve around you. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.